Hi, I'm Pastor Kaylee. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Wood Street Chapel in Fortuna, California. You can find out more information about our church at www.woodstreetchapel.org. Mark 11, 1 through 21. Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the village opposite you. And as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say that the Lord has need of it. And immediately they'll send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside the street and they, they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, what, what are you doing untying that colt? And they, they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. So they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus. They threw their clothes on and he sat on it. And many spread their, their clothes on the road and others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And then those who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things as the hour was already late, he he went out to Bethany with the 12. Now the next day when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. And so in response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So they came to Jerusalem and and Jesus went into the temple and he began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the, the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. And then he taught, saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it into a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and, and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all of the people were astonished at his teaching. And when evening had come, he went out of the city. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. Now, I am excited to, to be here, to be able to, to talk about this study yet again, to, to go over what it means to incorporate prayer into our daily lives. And, and one nice thing about a study on prayer is that there is not a shortage uh, of areas in the Bible that talk about prayer. Prayer is kind of a common theme. Um, but you may have noticed that we've stayed away from some of the, the typical areas of prayer in the Bible. Um, most of the time, Elijah on Mount Carmel is not what we think about when we think about a series on prayer. Most of the time, Elijah in the wilderness is not what we think about when we think about a series on prayer. And the, the passage that we just read probably isn't something that comes to mind when we think about a study on prayer. I mean, goodness, the, the word pray doesn't even show up until verse 15. And you're right, this passage doesn't really 
focus very much on prayer. What does it focus on? It focuses on action. The question before us this morning is, what does it mean to become our prayers? I want to tell you a story about a a guy named Joe. And I'm not talking about that Joe. (laughs) Different Joe. (laughs) I heard a a story about a man who who we're just going to call Joe. If I was more forward thinking, I would have picked a name of somebody who doesn't go here. Um, He lived out of the Nashville area with his wife, and his kids were grown. They had moved out. Uh, He'd made his living building houses, then renting them out after they were finished. And, and Joe was, was doing so well at this that he and his wife were, were planning for early retirement. They had already bought a house in Florida. They were spending like half their time there. Um, and the plan was as soon as they made their exit from his, his business that they would go that direction. They would li- retire and live in Florida full time, drinking margaritas and playing golf. That, that was kind of the, the end game. Uh, while Joe was renting homes, there was a mother with four children who would occasionally fall behind on her rent. And, you know, Joe would have been well within his rights to, to kick her out and say, no, you can't live here anymore. Um, he didn't. You know, he, was, he wanted to, to be compassionate on the, these kids. He, he knew what the, the situation was. And, and it was just something that he was willing to, to be compassionate about. Um, Joe always knew about Jesus. He was, was one of those people who, you know, maybe went to church every once in a while. He, he knew about the things of God, but he, he didn't, really, didn't really subscribe to all of that. If you looked at his life, it probably would have looked very similar to anybody else that didn't go to church, that, that didn't have a relationship with Jesus. There, there wasn't any real specific evidence of, of uh, God living in him. And yet one day Joe received word that due to circumstances outside of his knowledge, the, the mother of these four children had recently been incarcerated. And that these, these four children had actually just been taken into the foster system and that they had been split up. And Joe approached a person that he knew from church that, that actually was in, involved in the church that he occasionally attended. And he asked, you know, is there anything that, that can be done here? What, what, how, how can God move in this situation? What, what is supposed to be done? What are we as people who profess to, to be Christians, what are we supposed to do? And, and this follower of Christ says to him, well, you should probably pray. really? That's all? And to Joe, this, this feels like a cop-out. Like, there, there's got to be more that can be done here. You can't tell me that this is the, the only thing that we're supposed to, we're supposed to just sit here and pray? And so Joe goes on his way, and he begins to pray, and, and something really interesting starts to happen for Joe as he begins to pray. All of a sudden, he has this very clear uh, inclination that his wife and, and him are, are supposed to be a little bit more involved in this situation than just pray. He has, a, all of a sudden, a very clear understanding that he's called to actually go and, and become the parents of these four children. And so they go and they, they adopt 
all four of these kids into their home. And what was originally supposed to be margaritas and golf courses has now become the chaotic raising of four children that they were never expecting to raise. And yet, out of that comes the most beautiful story of love. Out of, out of this, this prayer, Joe is now used to become the answer to the prayer. This story is an excellent example of how God answers prayer. So often the expectation, or dare I say hope, uh, when we pray is that we, we pray for a situation and the, the hope is that God just supernaturally like reaches down out of heaven and like tweaks it. And it's like, okay, it's good now. God, we, we, we pray for you know, this particular need that exists here. And the hope is that God just kind of nudges it a little bit or, or that there's this person that's brought from across the world and dropped into the situation that just magically fixes it. I mean, that, that would be amazing. And God does that sometimes. But can I just say, in my experience, the other 95% of the time, what happens is God moves on the heart of the people that are praying and he says, hey, guess what? You, you get to be a part of this. What happens is the Holy Spirit moves in my life and it says, hey, Matt, that thing that you are praying for, this is an excellent way for you to, to partner with me in seeing that come about in this person's life. Well, that's not what I meant, right? <laughs> you, you pray and you're like, God, that, that's not what I was talking about. I, 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 I have the golf course and the margarita. Like, I have a plan, a schedule. I have, have things that I was going to do. And God says, yeah, but this is going to be so much better. This is going to be so much better. We as believers and followers of Christ have been invited to participate with God and bring his kingdom to earth. That's, that's what's happening in Joe's life right here. That's, that's what we see is God's kingdom coming to earth. And it's extremely clear for those four children that he has adopted. So if we look back at, to the scripture that we're, we're focusing on this morning, we see Jesus going on this tirade and in the middle of this, this tirade, in the middle of this, you know, really one of the, the times that we see Jesus the most angry, he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. If we, we link that statement to what Jesus is doing, what, what is happening here is prayer is being linked together with justice. The statement isn't that this is the place where we all come together to pray for the nations. That's, that's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is that this is the place where all the nations are supposed to come together and worship the one true God. That's, that's what is actually supposed to be taking place. But before we go too far with that, we need to, we need to take a step back. 
halfway through the passage, we, we get verse 12, and it says, Now the next day when they had come out uh, from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing. In response, Jesus said, Let nobody eat fruit from you ever again. And the disciples heard it. Now, I'm not a, a huge fig fan personally, um, but I do really like dates. And, you know, dates are kind of, you know, in that same area, that same region, still something something that's eaten, another common delicacy. And figs and dates have something in common. They are both incredibly sweet. And, I mean, that's coming from me today, someone who has been exposed to, you know, all of the sugar and everything that we eat in every meal. You can probably bet that if we look at first century peasants who are coming across figs and dates, that, I mean, a fig tree was kind of like coming across Candyland. Like, they didn't know high fructose corn syrup. And so you can imagine that when you find a fig tree out in the wild that has fruit on it, or that has leaves and looks healthy, you get a little excited. Candy. (laughs) And yet... When Jesus goes to to pull the fig off of the tree, there isn't any. And you could understand how that would make somebody a little disappointed. But then we hear Jesus curse the tree that it will never bear fruit again. And all of a sudden you start looking at this and you say, like, that seems like a little bit of an overreaction. (laughs) Like, what was the the purpose there? What, What are we doing? And then we have this phrase at the very end. The phrase at the very end that says, and his disciples heard him say it. Now that's a clue. That's a clue that that Jesus is up to something that's probably a little bit more involved than just being bummed out about a fig tree not giving him fruit. And so what we see here is that this fig tree probably has some involvement, something to do with what's going to happen in the temple And it's going to maybe take them a while to understand it. So let's hang on to that. And we need to flash back to the previous day for just a minute. Jesus is riding the colt into the city. You know, we often call this the the triumphal entry. It was triumphal for the people that were there for the, the people that were welcoming Jesus in because they had a specific expectation that, that Jesus was, was bound to meet, in their opinion. They, they thought they knew what Jesus was coming to do. When Jesus is riding into the city of Jerusalem, he stops for a moment, and we, we see this in Luke 19. As he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it. I don't know about you, but I don't typically associate weeping with a triumphal entry. After the Hosannas and before he goes into the temple, we see 
a prayer that Jesus prays in Matthew 23. It says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I've wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus stops in the midst of this parade, literal parade of the city welcoming him in, albeit for the wrong reasons, he stops in the middle of it and he weeps over the city that is welcoming him. And he stops to pray. And the prayer is critical because this prayer sets the tone for what's about to happen in the temple. It shows us that that what is about to happen in the temple is being driven not by anger, but by love. Jesus is weeping for compassion for the city, and then he goes on to reform the temple. The weeping for the city, that's the prayer that is being talked about, and then the move into the temple is the justice. Remember, there's, there's prayer, and then there's justice. There's action that is expected to come from prayer. And in Jesus, these two things are inseparable. And so Jesus reaches the temple courts and, and we know what happens here, right? The, he, he goes crazy. It's like one of those rooms that they, they let people lock themselves in with bats and they just start like breaking stuff. Um, like that's what Jesus starts doing. He just starts upending tables. Money gets thrown everywhere. He's, he's smashing the, the cages that hold the doves. So there's like birds flying everywhere. And I mean, we have like four ducks, three, four ducks. Yeah, we have four ducks. Um, just four ducks, like, flapping all around is kind of chaotic. I cannot imagine what having all of these, like, cages of doves released everywhere would be like. It'd be a pretty crazy mess. Jesus brings a homemade whip with him to start a stampede in the temple. What is God so worked up about? The modern estimates say that a dove should have cost six cents in today's money. They were charging 75. The currency exchange that was in place was forcing anyone that wanted to uh, participate in sacrifice to change their money at the temple first into a temple coin that then they would be allowed to use to buy the animal that would be sacrificed. And so that ensured that the only animals that were sacrificed were animals that were purchased at the temple. And you can bet that the exchange rate wasn't favorable to the person buying it. They were getting ripped off. People were being cheated who were coming to purchase forgiveness. That's, that's what people were doing. That, that is what the sacrificial system was about at that time, was to come and, and try to purchase forgiveness of sin. And we know today that, that that's not how this works. The, the, the blood of Jesus is what allows for forgiveness of sin. But The blood of Jesus wasn't a thing yet. (laughs) The blood of Jesus hadn't happened yet. And so this was the best they had and they were getting cheated while it was happening. And you know what made it worse? Is that all of this transaction was happening in a specific place. It was happening in a place called the court of the Gentiles. 
The court of the Gentiles was the only place that people that weren't a part of the chosen nation were able to go to. It was the nosebleed section. And the nosebleed section had just been turned into a shopping mall. The outsider's only place of prayer had totally been taken away. And so Jesus borrows uh, words from two different prophets as he shows up and he, he is tearing into the, the people that are overseeing this process. Is it not written that my house will be called a house of prayer for the nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers? The first half of that statement comes from Isaiah. Isaiah is the prophet who rebukes Israel for divorcing prayer from justice, for, for focusing on prayer and not focusing on the action that should come from it. And Jesus is specifically quoting Isaiah 56, which is all about how the temple is for the eunuch, for the, the foreigner, for the stranger. And it says, these I will bring to my holy mountain and I will give them joy in my house of prayer. The, the, the house of prayer is for these people and you have turned it into a shopping mall. If we look at, at Genesis and the promise that was given to Abraham, he, was, he promised that he was blessed to be a blessing. You have taken my house and you have made it into a den of robbers. Jeremiah is standing at, in quite possibly the exact same spot that Jesus is standing at. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever and ever. That's the promise. Jesus is quoting prophets that, that these priests know. They know exactly what Jesus is saying. There is no house of prayer that is not equally a house of justice. And the, the problem is in the eyes of the priests that are there that everything looks great. What are you talking about? Attendance is up. Giving is up. We've got a full house on Sundays. People are coming to the Bible study that we have in the middle of the week. Everything looks fine. What are, you, what are you so worked up about? What did the compassionate eyes of Jesus see that the priest didn't? Injustice. The house of prayer for all nations had become a place of, of spiritual rhetoric, a place uh, where the poor were left outside, where the people who needed the most were the most easily forgotten. And so what we see here is that Jesus doesn't just stop, stop at weeping for the city when he comes into town. 
He weeps, he prays for the city, and then he moves into the city to put right what has been corrupted. The, the account that we see in Matthew for this interaction tells us exactly what takes place. After Jesus calls out the priests, after he comes in and upends the tables and he moves all of the animals out of the court, the very next verse says that the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Jesus doesn't just make a mess of the temple market. He makes a mess of the temple structure. Historically, people who were blind, people that were lame, people that were deaf, they weren't allowed into the temple because the thought was that they had done something that brought this on them and that they could not bring that through the front door of God's house. And what does God do? God upends the tables. He brings the person who has the need into his house and says, here, you can meet me, and here I will meet your need. And in the temple is where they have healing. They're invited into the presence of God where they were not told that they belonged, and he heals them. And in healing them, this means that the priests no longer have any justification for keeping them out. This illness that you misdiagnosed as being spiritually focused, I took care of that. They're able to to come in and be a part of this. Jesus is, is kicking down gates that divided people from God. He's coming in, he's kicking down divisions between people groups, saying that my house will be a house of prayer for all the nations. And just to further send this point home, do you know where Jesus was staying the week that he was doing all of this? Mark tells us he was staying at the house of Simon the leper. It wasn't just some random person's house. He was sleeping in the house of a leper. He was eating his meals at the house of a leper. He was having his morning tea at the house of a leper. The Passover, the highest of high holy days. And and here we have Jesus, a rabbi, willingly making himself ceremonially unclean by living and being in contact with next to a leper. Jesus, the insider, is going to and living with the outsider. What Jesus starts with this radical cleansing of the temple, he finishes with his death on the cross. And the curtain that's torn from top to bottom that completely removes any level of separation between God and the people. No longer is there a need for separation between God and his children because there has been a blood sacrifice that covers all sin, not just for the select few, not just for the chosen people, but for everyone. And not just after you get healed, but just as you are. Jesus turned the temple inside out. The excluded have become the invaluable. So what? Why are we talking about this today? Why why does this need to be the next 
area of focus for us because I know myself. I know how I and others think. This past few weeks, we have gone through all of this teaching about prayer and about seeing God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And the past few weeks, we've talked about praying for the lost in our lives. The last few weeks, we've talked about praying for gratitude in the evening at the end of our day, recognizing God's faithfulness, the blessings that he gives. We've talked about praying for all of those things. And church, it is too tempting to stop there. It is too tempting to stop and to just pray. I have used this example before. If I come to my son and say, Oliver, I want you to clean your room. And he says, Dad, I'm going to pray about it. How do you think I'm going to react to that? Well, that's nice. You can pray while you're cleaning. (laughs) And it's funny, you know, it's comical to think of that because that would never be the response, right? And yet, how many times are we given instruction? How many times are are we given direction? I say, God, I'll pray about it. And God's like, I don't need you to pray about it. I'm just telling you to go do it. It's time to stop the praying, and actually move into action. Uh, There's an illustration of a horse. A horse is really only useful in one instance. If the horse is is walking alongside the master, if, if the horse decides to bolt ahead of the master, probably not super useful. If the horse decides to sit down while the master is trying to move forward, also probably not very helpful. Very often we find ourselves in either the first or second group, and not often enough do we find ourselves being willing to walk beside the master. Sometimes the I'm just going to pray about it is me sitting down while Jesus is like, well, I'm going. So you can hang out there, but we're going to keep going. I know myself. I know that it is too easy for me to to stop at prayer. But there is an expectation of justice. There is an expectation of action that comes from that. The prayers that we, we bring before God, we should expect there to be movement. We should expect there to be change. Do you remember Joe who we talked about? We need to be careful what we pray for. When we pray, it is very likely that God is going to move on the heart of the person praying and the the person that has already been moved to, to bring that before God, to be the answer to that prayer. And so the question for us this morning is, are there areas in your life where you are called to be the answer to your prayer? I, I don't know the answer to that. Thankfully, I don't have to know the answer to that. That's a you and God thing. But that would be my, my challenge for you this morning is to look at your prayer life. Look at, at the r- daily rhythm that we have committed to as a church. If you are praying for the lost... 
Don't you think that maybe God could use you as an answer to the prayer for that lost person? If you are praying to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven as you're on your your morning walk, don't you think that, that God could use you to influence the city that you live in? That God could use you to, to bring his light into the neighborhood that you live in, into the, the workplace that you're in. Are there areas in your life where you are being called to be the answer to prayer? Heavenly Father, God, we come this morning God, we ask that you would renew our minds, that you would open our eyes and our ears, God, that we would be vigilant, that we would wait when you tell us to wait, but God, that we would move when you tell us to move. God, I want to be used by you. I want to be effective in what you have called me to do. I want my life to be a reflection of what you have called me to do, not a reflection of what I want to do. God, I lay down my rights. I lay down my pride. I lay down everything that I have for the sake of knowing you and seeing your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That is the commitment that I'm willing to make this morning. God, I give all of me for all of you. And as we come to this place, as we come to this time of prayer, this time of of self-examination, Lord, I ask that, that we would have ears to hear, have eyes to see, that we would be sensitive enough to understand those areas that you are calling us to to partner with you, to be a part of the solution, a part of the, the justice that needs to come out of our prayers. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like more information about Wood Street Chapel, check out our website, woodstreetchapel.org, or email us, info at woodstreetchapel.org. Connect with us on Facebook to stay in the loop. 